Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I want to continue this morning our series of messages on the things most surely believed among us. We're just attempting to summarize the core truths that we believe here at Bethel Church on the doctrine of eternal salvation. And this morning, if you have a Bible, open with me to the 17th chapter of John's Gospel as I speak this morning on the theme, We Believe in Christ's Finished Work. Now, we have already started with, We Believe in the New Birth. That's a little bit out of sequence. Usually when we talk about how God saved sinners, we start with what He did before the world began with the covenant of redemption. That was our theme, by the way, last week. But we started in this particular study with the doctrine of regeneration or what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts when we are born again. And the reason I started with that is that's where most of us live. And that's the area in which we diverge with many other professing Christian friends in the religious world. Many of them would differ with us here at Bethel Church, on how a sinner is born again. We believe it's the direct, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in the heart without the use of human instrumentality or means. God does it. And most other of our friends in religious circles today say that you have to do something. You have to believe or accept or make a decision or sign a card or pray the sinner's prayer or confess your sins or repent or be baptized. And we believe that life must come before action. And I think that's a very important doctrinal conviction. So we started with what the Holy Spirit does in the new birth. Then we went back last week to the council halls of eternity past and talked about the covenant of grace, the everlasting covenant. God planned salvation, the master plan. And what the Holy Spirit did, of course, in our lives is something that was planned by God in the covenant. The Holy Spirit is simply carrying out a covenant assignment. And likewise, today we're going back to Mount Calvary, to the cross, to see the accomplishment of salvation. We've talked about the application of it in the new birth, the planning of it in the everlasting covenant. Today we're talking about the achievement of or the accomplishment of salvation at the cross. And that, too, was planned by God in the council halls of eternity past when Christ was appointed and he voluntarily assumed the role of sin-bearer. So we're in John 17 this morning. Let's read the first five verses. Then I want to get one other verse from two chapters later, John 19, verse 30, as we speak on the finished work of Christ. John 17, verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. These are the red letters, if you will note. Jesus is praying in the presence of his disciples. John 17 is known as his high priestly or intercessory prayer. And notice he says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now this is right in the shadow of the cross. At the end of his earthly life and ministry, Jesus says, Father, I've finished the work. Now turn with me to John 19. That's just a couple of pages in my Bible. Verse 30. On the cross, we read these words. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The last words of Jesus, the seventh of seven sayings on the cross, he said with a loud voice, 
Notice not a whisper, but a loud voice. It is finished. Now I suggest this word finished is very significant. It carries with it a wonderful doctrinal truth. And that is that salvation was accomplished. Redemption was achieved. That Jesus Christ actually saved his people when he died on the cross. We believe in an actual, not a possible or a potential Savior. When Jesus died on the cross, he actually secured salvation. Now I want to ask three questions this morning as we talk about the finished work of Christ. And the first question we ask is, why did the Son of God come into this world? And I think it's important to understand that issue before we can understand what he achieved. Why did he come? Did Jesus Christ come to give us an example of what sacrificial love is? Well, he certainly did that. We have a wonderful example of sacrificial love in him, but that's not the purpose of his coming, not just to give an example for people to emulate. Did Jesus Christ come to make the world a better place to live? Well, how's that working out for you? (laughs) This world, my friends, is in trouble, isn't it? Now, he did make an impact. In fact, much of Western civilization today illustrates or displays the influence that that man from Nazareth and Galilee, the God-man, had on history. Did you know many of the advances in modern science, in education, in health care, all of that has roots in Christian influence that traces back to the coming of Jesus Christ. It is Christian people who have started building hospitals and nursing homes to care for the elderly. It is Christian people who encouraged adoption to try to bring orphaned and unwanted children into families that would love and nurture them. It is Christian people, my friends, who have been responsible for encouraging the education of youth. And many of these great advances in Western civilization are traced back to the influence of Christianity from earliest times. But that's not the purpose of Jesus' coming. He didn't come to make the world a better place to live. He didn't come just to give us an example. He didn't come just as a great moral teacher and philosopher. He came, as verse 2 says, to give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Notice the fifth verse. He says, Father, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Jesus Christ was given a work to do. Now, when was he given that work? In the covenant of grace. Before time began, the Father assigned a task to the Son. He gave him a work to do. Now, at the end of his life and ministry, as he prepares to go to the cross, Jesus says, Father, I've finished the work which thou gavest me to do. What was that work? Verse 2 defines the work that Jesus came to do in these terms, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So let's ask the question, why did Jesus come into this world? There are verses aplenty to answer this question. John 6, 39, I came down from heaven. He's going to answer why he came. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will. He didn't have a personal agenda, but to do the will of him that sent me. He'd been given a work to do, and he came to implement and to finish that work, to do the will of him that sent me. You say, well, what was the will of the Father that sent him? He goes on to explain it. And this is the will of him that sent me. Don't you love the simplicity of the Bible? That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Now, the idea is that God gave a people to Christ. In the covenant, they're called the elect. And we talked about that last time. But he said, of all that thou hast given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. The entire family of God will be raised and glorified and presented to the Father without the loss of one because Jesus finished the work that he came to do. Galatians 4.4 answers the question, why did the Son of God come into this world? It says, and when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Jesus came to redeem. Notice the Father dispatched him. God sent forth his Son. 
He had covenanted to send him. Jesus had assumed the role of mediator. Now when time reached its pinnacle, at the apex of time, when the fullness of the time has come, God dispatched his son from heaven for this purpose, to redeem. Why did Jesus come? He didn't come to just be a good example or to teach an interesting philosophy so that he's uh, parallel to Gandhi or Confucius. He came, my friends, to save. He came to redeem. He came to do the Father's will. These verses tell us plainly why he came. Let's just get a few more real quickly. Luke 19.10 The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And notice he didn't come to try to save or to make salvation available. Or to make salvation possible. He came to save. Of course, the great verse that explains why he came is Matthew 1.21. When the angel announced his birth to Joseph, he said, Fear not, Joseph, to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Don't you love that verse? Notice there are three shalls in Matthew 1.21. She shall bring forth a son. That's a certainty. She would have a male child. She shall. The angel says it's going to happen. Do you believe that shall certain? Notice the second shall. Thou shall call his name Jesus. Notice he was named by God. Heaven named him. And by the way, the name Jesus means Jehovah saves. Now he couldn't wear that name if he failed at the cross, could he? He couldn't be called Jesus, which means salvation, if he didn't save. You might say, Farmer Mike. Mike is a farmer. Well, I don't know how to farm. I'm not very good at it. Not even a good gardener. <laughs> so really, I can't wear that name. A farmer farms. That's why you call him a farmer. A teacher teaches. That's why you call him or her a teacher. And a Savior saves. And he would not be fit to wear the name Jesus if he did not succeed at saving his people from their sins. Notice, he shall save. Now, if the first two shalls are certainties, that she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, the third one has to be a certainty. He shall save his people from their sins. I'm glad to proclaim to you today, dear friends, that Jesus Christ came to save. He came to give eternal life. And that word give is important. Notice eternal life is not an offering. He didn't come to offer eternal life. Now, with all due respect, that's what most of our religious friends believe, that Jesus offered himself on the cross. He made salvation possible. He opened the gate to heavenly bliss when he died on the cross. It's offered to anybody and everybody, but you have to do something to accept it. That's what most people believe. Jesus didn't come to offer eternal life. He came to give it, to give eternal, to save, to actually save, not just to make it available that you can close the deal by making a decision. No, he came to actually save. It's interesting that in Christian history, on October 2nd, 1792, in Kettering, England, a man named Andrew Fuller led the formation of the first modern missionary society on the fundamental principle that the gospel was a free offer of salvation to all sinners. Fuller's magnum opus was a book entitled The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. And he promoted the view in that book that has since become so popular in religious circles, especially in America. Namely, that the atonement was sufficient for all men, but it was efficient only to those who believe in Jesus Christ. The idea was that it's good enough to cover all men, but only those who believe will find it to be effective. The New School Baptist historian David Benedict wrote of Fuller in 1860. This famous man maintained, says Benedict, that the atonement of Christ was general in its nature, general and vague, that is open-ended, but particular in its application. He says, in opposition to our old divines who taught that Christ died for the elect only. 
Now, Benedict says our old preachers taught that Christ died only for the elect. And that Fuller broke from that tradition by saying that it's good enough for all, but only those who believe will actually experience it. You know, such a position as Fuller's depicts Christ as nothing more than a potential Savior. And it denies that his work on the cross actually accomplished anything except to make salvation possible if man will cooperate. But our text this morning says he came to give eternal life. It's a free gift, not to offer it. And that, my friends, is where the good news comes in. The gospel is good news because salvation is a gift that is free to you and me. Now, it wasn't free to him. It cost Jesus dearly. But my beloved, it is given to us freely by his grace. And the word grace means unearned favor, unmerited favor. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. In fact, if you want to talk about what we deserved, what we earned, it's an eternity separated from God in hell. My friends, God has blessed us in spite of ourselves. That's grace. God has rescued the unworthy. God has loved the unlovely. God has saved those who couldn't save themselves. God has rescued hopeless and ruined sinners according to his sovereign purpose. That's grace. And Jesus Christ gave eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So our first question is, why did the Son of God come into this world? He came to give eternal life. He came to save. He came to actually accomplish salvation. Now here's question number two this morning. Did he achieve his objective? If he came to save, did he do it? And verse four in our text answers that. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now, I've engaged in projects before that I said when I was done, I'm finished. But you know, a trained eye could see something that still needed to be done. Perhaps a nail was out of place. Perhaps an angle wasn't just exactly square. And a trained eye could pick out the flaws and say, well, you say you're finished, but it looks like you still need to work a little bit. I want to tell you in the technical sense of the word, I've never perfectly finished anything. Have you? Some of you sisters might say I finished the meal for my family. I finished preparing dinner or supper. But you know, there could have been something added maybe that wasn't added. Maybe a dish that you forgot to prepare that you'd planned or maybe one that you'd prepared and left perhaps in the refrigerator and forgot about it. You know, it was finished, but it wasn't finished. I want to say the word finished in the Bible means to be perfected. It means perfectly finished. Did Jesus Christ accomplish his goal? Well, he couldn't have said on the cross, it is finished, if there was anything remaining to be done in the salvation of sinners. That statement, it is finished, is not a cry of despair. It's a shout of victory. Now, sometimes, you know, the old gangster movies would say, you're finished, Rocky. You're finished. That is, it's curtains for you. You're done for. Jesus didn't mean when he said, it is finished that I'm finally beaten. It's over and I've lost. That's not what he's saying. Notice he didn't whisper, it is finished. He didn't mumble, it is finished. He cried with a loud voice, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Now, if you had been hanging on a cross, crucifixion, for six hours, and in order to alleviate the pressure on your lungs, your respiratory system, you pushed up with your feet. And then in order to alleviate the pressure and pain in your limbs and your feet and legs, you would hold up on your arms and relax your feet. If you had been going through that for six hours, my friends, the agony and the torture of crucifixion, do you think you could have cried with a loud voice? Remember, Jesus had already been beaten with a cat of nine tails in Pilate's judgment hall. He'd already been flogged. He'd already been beaten to the point where he was beyond human recognition. Many were astonished, says Isaiah 52, 13, at the, that is astonished, that is, they were aghast. He didn't even look human. 
His visage was so marred more than any man. That's before the cross. And then you think about the agony and the pain of having those spikes nailed into your hands and feet and then the crown of thorns beaten down upon your brow and his body bathed in blood, his back opened like a farmer's freshly plowed field. Could you have cried with a loud voice? I think I might have whispered and said, what, what, what did he say? Did he, did he even say anything? I couldn't understand him. Jesus spoke triumphantly. It is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. My beloved, that's a shout of victory. Did you know that expression, that sentence, it is finished, three words, is a single word in the original Greek language. Tetelestai is the American Southerner's pronunciation of that word. And it, it comes from the root word telos, which means to make an end, to complete, to perfect, to accomplish, to make an end. It, it speaks of the goal has been attained. The objective has been reached. Now, why did Jesus come? He came to die. And then dying to save his people from their sins. And then at the end of his earthly life and ministry on the cross, he said, it is finished. He doesn't just mean my life is finished, but he means the work that the Father gave me to do has been brought to its completion. It's been accomplished. The goal has been attained. The objective has been reached. Did he achieve his objective? That sentence indicates that he believed he did. And I want to give you three proofs for the finished work of Christ. Notice in the New Testament, the use of past tense verbs. That's proof number one. When it speaks of what Jesus did on the cross, it doesn't speak of something ongoing, something that is continuing to take place. It speaks of something that has already happened past tense. Finished, notice the ED on the end of that word. It is not I'm finishing, but it's finished. Speaks of something that's happened. Hebrews 9.12 says he entered into heaven having obtained ED. Eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 10.14 says by one offering he hath perfected, past tense, forever, them that are sanctified. Perfected. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says, The blood of the covenant whereby you are sanctified. Past tense. 1 Peter chapter 1.18 and Galatians 3.13 says that Christ hath redeemed. Past tense us. From the curse of the law. We're redeemed. E.D. By the precious blood of Christ. Revelation 1.5 says unto him that loved us and washed us. W-A-S-H-E-D, washed us from our sins in his own blood. Hebrews 1.3 says, when he had by himself purged us from our sins, past tense, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Romans 5.10 says that we are reconciled, past tense, unto God by the death of Christ. And Romans 3.24 says, being freely justified, past tense, by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Does it sound like He's still trying to do a work? Sounds like He did it, doesn't it? He came to do a work, my friends, and He did it. That's proof number one, the use of past tense verb. Proof number two that He finished the work is the fact that He rose from the dead. I dare say if Jesus had been a failure on the cross, then death would have gotten the last word. You know, the wages of sin is what? Death. And the reason that death has such a stranglehold on humanity is because people are sinners. If Jesus had not conquered sin, he could not have been resurrected. The resurrection is proof positive that the work that he came to do was done. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered for our offenses. God sent him because of our sins. And he was raised again because of our justification. The fact that he came out of the grave is proof positive that justification has taken place. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, If Christ be not risen, then you are yet in your sins. But I love verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. What a triumphant note that is. If he's not resurrected, my friends, we have no assurance that our sins have been dealt with. But the fact that he has come out of the grave is evidence of plenty. 
that redemption was finished. Yes, indeed, Jesus Christ is a living Savior, and he conquered death, which is proof that he conquered what caused death. The wages of sin is death. So he's dealt with our sins. Then I suggest the third proof that he finished the work is not only the use of past tense verbs in the New Testament, and not only the fact of the empty tomb that he came out of the grave, but his heavenly posture is evidence that he finished the work. You know what Jesus did when he went back to heaven? Hebrews 1.3 says, when he had by himself purged us from our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, I dare say, had anything been left to accomplish, had anything remained undone, had any T remained uncrossed or any I remained undotted, Jesus Christ would be pacing the floors of heaven in perpetual anxiety, waiting for man to contribute his part to finish the work. But when Jesus went back to heaven, he assumed a posture of rest. He sat down. He could not have sat down, again I say, had anything remained to be accomplished. Listen to this passage in Hebrews 10.10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in the 10th verse, says this, By the which will we are sanctified, past tense, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth. Now, do you remember those Old Testament priests that served the tabernacle and later the temple? They stood daily. It says, every priest standeth. Watch the contrast in this passage between two postures, standing and sitting. The priest did not sit. Some of our old Baptist predecessors in the ministry liked to say there was no seat in the old tabernacle or the temple. There's not a place to sit down. There wasn't a chair, a sofa, a settee, a divan, a stool. No place for them to rest. Do you know why? Because the blood of animal sacrifices could never take away the first sin. Their work was never done. Every priest standeth daily. You've heard some of these people that have to work on assembly lines or maybe a waitress, she's on her feet her entire shift, or a nurse. You know, they're constantly standing. They're moving at all times. And when they get through with their shift, they say, my feet are so tired. Can you imagine how tired the priest's feet were? Every priest standeth daily, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. That is, every day, every year, for 1,500 years, not the first drop of animal blood ever removed the first sin. And the priest's work was never done. It can never take away sin. But this man, in contrast to the Old Testament priest talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. My beloved, what I'm preaching to you today is that Jesus Christ is at rest satisfied with his finished work of salvation on the cross, and you ought to be satisfied with it too. Are you content in what Jesus has done? Or do you say, no, we still need to add something to it? My trust for heaven this morning, my beloved, is totally in what Jesus did in my place because I believe he is a successful Savior. Jesus was not a failure. You know, we have an actual Savior not a potential or a hypothetical Savior. Matthew one twenty one again says, He shall save His people from their sins. There's not the slightest hint of uncertainty that that would happen. And I want to tell you this morning, He did it. We have an actual Savior. Jesus is a successful Savior, not a failure. Isaiah 42.4 says, He shall not fail nor be discouraged. The prophecy about 700 years before the coming of Christ was that when the Messiah comes, God's righteous servant, He would not fail or be discouraged. Jesus didn't come to try to do a work, but man just refused to cooperate. Jesus didn't come to make salvation possible if the preacher will help Him by taking the message. Now you say, well, Brother Mike, if that's not your job, then why do you preach? That's our final segment in this little mini-series on the things most surely believed among us. Next time we'll talk about the purpose of the gospel. But my friends, I want to tell you that I don't contribute 
anything to help the Lord populate heaven. You don't contribute anything. It's not the church's role. It's not the ministry's role. It's not the sinner's role to help the Lord in his own salvation. Jesus is the only one who deserves to wear that name Savior because he's the only one who can and who did save his people from their sins. Yes, indeed, my beloved, we have a victorious, not a defeated Savior. Listen to this passage from Colossians 2, verses 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Now what that means is Jesus took the heavenly stamp that said paid in full. And he blotted out, just like the mortgage company would stamp your loan paid in full. So Jesus blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. You know, the law condemned us. The ordinances of God had condemned us to eternal punishment, but Jesus has paid it in full. He's blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, taking it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers. Watch this language. The word spoiled means that he has ransacked the enemy. Just like a military victor would spoil the enemy, would take his substance from him and publicly humiliate him. So Jesus Christ spoiled principalities and power and he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. I believe in a triumphant, victorious Savior. I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to set his people free. Victory in Jesus. Don't you believe, my friends, that Jesus Christ is a victor? He's our conquering warrior hero, our hero king. Indeed, my beloved, Jesus Christ won the victory. Thanks be to God, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad I don't have to preach a foiled, thwarted, frustrated, defeated Savior. I'm glad I can preach one who came to do a work and he did it. And he went back to heaven and assumed a posture of rest. And he's been crowned Lord of Lords and King of Kings for all eternity because Jesus Christ is the Savior of his people. So our questions this morning, why did the Son of God come? He came to save. Did he achieve his objective or did he fail? My beloved, he was successful. And then our final question this morning, what precisely did Jesus finish at Calvary? He said it is finished. What is the it? It. What precisely did he finish? I suggest, first of all, he made an end. The word finish means to make an end to, of our sin. Our sins have been dealt with once and for all. Do you believe that? John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now somebody says, I just don't understand the Bible. It's too complicated. Well, can you understand this verse? Behold the Lamb of God. Now here's God's sacrifice. The lambs were sacrifices in the Old Testament. Here is the Lamb. God's provision for sinners. The Lamb. Look at Him. Behold the Lamb of God. And what's He going to do with our sins? Which taketh away the sin of the world. My beloved, Jesus Christ came not to just make a dent or a deposit toward or an investment in the final taking away of sin. He came himself to take it away. What does it mean to take away? It means in technical terms to take it away. It means it's gone. If something's taken away, it's gone. Hebrews 9.26 says, Now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He came to take it away. He came to put it away. What has he done with it? Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You know, the reason he didn't say as far as the north is from the south is because north and south will meet. If you were journeying from the North Pole to the South Pole, once you got to the South Pole, and continued your journey, you would begin to journey north again. But you know, if you started in California and you journeyed to Missouri, then over to North Carolina, and then across the Atlantic Ocean, you're journeying east, and you came to the United Kingdom, and you journeyed through the UK, and you came to Greece and Turkey. And if you continued journeying across that mighty Asian continent, 
and you came to the Pacific Ocean and you continued journeying east across the Pacific and came back to California, you've been going east the whole time. East never runs into west. Now you turn that around, you start in North Carolina and go west, young man. And you get to California, you go across the Pacific, then to Asia, then to Greece and Turkey, then to Eastern Europe and now to uh, Western Europe, and then across the Atlantic and back to Carolina. You've been going west. East and west never meet. North and south do. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Your sins will never meet you again, and you will never meet them. So far as your home in heaven is concerned, Jesus has dealt with them once and for all. That's what's happened. He took them away. He put away sin. Listen to a few verses quickly. Micah 7.19 says, Our iniquities and sins have been subdued. God has subdued them and cast them into the depths of the sea. Now I know that now they've determined some pretty low places in the ocean. But you know, Back in the day, and I wonder if we've even seen how truly deep it is. But you know, back in the day, the depths of the sea was a land unexplored and uninhabited. That's what God's done with our sins. He's cast them into the depths of the sea. That's Micah 7, 19. Isaiah 38, 17 says, Thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. What has God done with your sins? He's separated them from us as far as the east is from the west. He's cast them into the depths of the sea. He's cast them behind His back. Isaiah 44.22 says He's blotted them out as a thick cloud. Job 14.17 says He's sewn them up and sealed them in a bag. And Hebrews 8.12 says Thy sins and iniquities I will remember no more. They've been taken into the land of forgetfulness. God will never countenance them. They don't come into his mind. When you go to God saying, Lord, I'm such a sinner, he says, what sins are you talking about? I don't remember them because my son has paid and atoned for those sins. What did he finish at Calvary? He finished our sins. They're finished. He's made an end of them. He also finished God's wrath. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But he says, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Do you know what the future holds for man apart from God's grace? Wrath. The wrath of God abides upon them. We're children of wrath by nature. That is, we were headed for divine judgment we all deserved that. Our sins, my friends, merit for us an eternity of separation from God and punishment, judicial punishment. The penalty of the law would have been executed upon us, but Jesus, we read, has saved us from wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, We are waiting for His Son from heaven, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, there's a wrath that's coming. There's a place where God will dispense his justice upon the wicked. But I'll tell you, for those who were embraced in his everlasting covenant, Jesus bore that wrath in their stead. I'm not saying that God just turns a blind eye and a deaf ear to the, our sins and says, well, I'm just not going to think about your sins, but I'm going to punish others. No, my friends, God never dispenses grace or mercy at the expense of his justice. If anybody is saved, it's because wrath has been born in their stead, in their place, by Jesus at the cross. So Jesus made an end of the wrath of God. God's wrath now has been appeased, satiated, pacified. We've been reconciled to God by the death of His Son. In fact, He's satisfied. Isaiah 53, 11, Thou shalt see of the travail of his soul. The father looked upon his son dying on the cross and shall be satisfied. You may know that satisfaction is a legal term. It's a legal construct. And it has to do with the discharge of a legal obligation by the payment of what is due. When it says that Jesus satisfied the father on the cross, that means, my friends, that he appeased divine justice by paying what was due for our sins. The word satisfaction is also familiar to us as the gentleman's code of honor. You remember back in colonial days, a man would feel insulted by his fellow and he would say, I demand satisfaction. 
You've heard that, haven't you? And then they would have a duel, you know, a gentleman's duel in which they would each have their pistol and they would take 10 paces and turn and fire. And of course, the man that died, even if he was the one who was originally insulted, yet he died, yet he died satisfied because he demanded satisfaction. His reputation had been ruined and he wanted to be appeased. My beloved, may I say Jesus Christ took the bullet on our behalf. He satisfied the justice of God, both in terms of expiating our sins, removing our sins, and propitiating God's wrath, removing divine wrath. He took care of both ends of the line. First, John 4.10 says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath remover. That's what that means. The wrath remover for our sins. So what has been finished? Our sins are finished. They're finished. God's wrath is finished on behalf of his people. I'll tell you what else is finished. The law is finished. Both in its penalty and in its precept. You know, the penalty or the curse of the law. We're all under the penalty of a broken law. Galatians 3.13 again says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. He's done it. The curse of the law. The penalty. The law had been broken. Somebody has to pay a penalty. He did it. The penalty of the law. The penalty of sin has been paid. Romans 6.14 therefore says you are not under the law. Talking to you today. You're not under the curse of sin anymore. But you're under grace. You're looked upon with divine favor. That's good news. And then the precept of the law was finished. Somebody not only had to pay the penalty. Somebody had to live up to it. Now, why was there a penalty? Because Adam broke the law, right? And therefore, a penalty must be meted out. But you see, somebody's got to live up to the law. Somebody's got to keep the precept of the law. Somebody's got to obey God. Again, we say salvation's free. It wasn't free to Christ. It cost him dearly. You say, I don't believe in salvation by works. Well, you need to be more specific. We don't believe in salvation by man's works. But I do believe in salvation by Christ's works. He did some work. Somebody had to do some work on our behalf. My beloved, I take great comfort not only in the passive obedience of Christ in His death on the cross, but in His active obedience in living a life of righteousness in our stead. Romans 10 forces Christ is the end. Same word, tell us. Finished. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness and to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, when Jesus came into this world, he didn't come to break the law. He came to fulfill it. And he did that. He filled it full. If I were to say, I'm going to fulfill this bottle of water, that's about two-thirds fulfilled right now. But if I were to fill it full, fulfill, fill full, that means I'd come all the way to the brim, right? Jesus came to satisfy the demands of the law, both in its penalty and in its precept. That's why Isaiah 42, 21b says, He magnified the law and made it honorable. We sing about that, don't we? Finished all the types and shadows of the ceremonial law. The types and shadows have reached their terminus. They found their fulfillment in the coming of Christ. Quickly, two more he finished the devil. He finished our sins. He finished God's wrath upon His people. He finished the penalty and precept of the law. Jesus Christ has made an end of the devil. He finished the devil. He conquered him. The first promise in the Bible, Genesis 3.15 says, the woman's seed would bruise the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. Now, I've asked you the question before, would you rather have your heel bruised or your head bruised? And you say, neither. <laughs> I understand. Me neither. But if you had to make a choice, which one would you choose? Have your heel, your foot injured, or your head injured? I'd rather have my heel injured, right? Because when the head gets injured, that can be a fatal blow. You know, you can live with a limp, but it's hard to live with a major blow to the head. Jesus' heel would be bruised by the serpent at the cross. He suffered. He had pain and agony and ridicule. But I'll tell you, in the process of that work, he bruised the old devil's head. And 1 John 3.8 says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says that he became us 
He took upon him the seed of Abraham that he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. I believe Jesus Christ conquered the old devil at the cross. Aren't you glad about that? You say, well, Brother Mike, he's still dogging my footsteps, making my life miserable, but he can't take away your eternal life. You're preserved. I want to tell you, Christ has done something for you the devil will never be able to steal or destroy. And then finally, he conquered the tyranny of death. 2 Timothy 1.10 says that Christ was made manifest and he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What did he accomplish at the cross? He's dealt the death blow to death. The death of death has been accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ. He's killed death. You say, well, it still happens every day. The morticians are still in business. But I'll tell you, it doesn't have the last word. Because as soon as the body dies for God's children, the soul and spirit immediately goes in the presence of God, right? Absence from the body is presence with the Lord. And I'll tell you, in the last day, he's going to resurrect that body. The late Dwight Moody said, when you read in the newspaper that Dwight Moody is dead, don't you dare believe it. I'll be more alive then than I've ever been in my life. Jesus said, he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. That is, there will never be any final separation from God. There's a sense in which death will not have the last word. Your story will not end at the cemetery. Jesus Christ, my friends, conquered death. He finished it. He made an end of it. He's defeated it once and for all. Hosea 13, 14, therefore says, O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. The Lord did, in fact, destroy death at the cross. It is finished. My beloved, tune your harps anew, ye seraphs. Join to sing the pleasing theme. All on earth and all in heaven, join to praise Emmanuel's name. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory to the bleeding lamb. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory to the bleeding lamb. That should be our response this morning because we believe in Christ's finished work.
Allah.